Welcome to this session of the Center for the Economics of the Internet here at the Hudson Institute. Uh, we're very honored to have with us today Kathy Brown from the Internet Society. I do want to mention uh, next Monday uh, we'll have Senator Deb Fisher of Nebraska joining us. Uh, please join us as well at that time. Uh, and uh, for our online audience, if you have questions, you may submit them to what is the right address on Twitter? At Hudson Events, Ad Hudson Events on Twitter. But today we are particularly pleased to have uh, Kathy Brown. Kathy Brown is the CEO of the Internet Society. Uh, she has a long and distinguished career in both the public and the private sectors. Uh, she began uh, at uh, the New York State Public Service Commission. I think you must have been in kindergarten at the time. <laughs> Do not use years. Okay. Um, and I've known Kathy uh, for uh, uh, a good a good time, uh, since you were chief of staff at the FCC, uh, you went on to a distinguished career in uh, a large private telecommunications company, and uh, you are now the CEO of the Internet Society, uh, an international organization with over a hundred chapters around the world. Uh, and uh, you're going to uh, speak to us today about Internet governance and security, and we are all waiting to hear <laughs> what you have to say. Uh, Ms. Brown will speak, and then uh, we'll open it up to the floor for questions. Thank you, Harold. So first, I, I must say I'm thrilled to be here with you. There was a time that there were a couple of times along the way that we probably didn't have the same point of view on things, but I have a feeling today I, that we're standing on common ground. <laughs> I, I, I don't remember those no, times. No, you don't. <laughs> uh, uh, I, Kathy uh, always uh, has been, uh, uh, I, I think, just a great source of integrity and uh, a straight shooter, tells it like it is, and uh, I, I, I don't remember any differences if they were they, they didn't matter to amount to a whole hill of beans so we're, we're glad to have you here because you were always a gentleman oh, so we'll, we'll proceed so um good morning good afternoon uh folks here in the room and also i understand there's people online so hello to the internet folks uh it's good to be with you um the internet society let me say a little bit about that uh who we are and what we do i think that may help just give you a perspective on um what it is I'm about to talk about. We are uh, a global community of individuals, uh, 90 staff across the world, 110 volunteer-led chapters. So these are groups of people who organize themselves and then uh, do have to uh, meet some criteria to become associated with the Internet Society. So they carry the Internet Society's card all around the world. I go around the world and people come up to me and say, I'm a member of the Internet Society. It's quite a powerful network. There are 145 organizational members, um, a lot of American-European uh, influence, but as we uh, have built our presence around the world, you're seeing other organizational members from... Uh, most continents actually starting to join us. 
We all share a united vision, a vision of keeping the internet open, free, resilient, and secure. Our roots are in the actual, uh, this is really true, <laughs> in the actual invention of the internet. So Vint Cerf indeed was the first president of the Internet Society. When, um, when this thing called the internet started emerging from the, uh, the universities and from, frankly, the United States military, it needed a place and a home. And the institutions that were set up early are ones you hear about now. So ICANN the regional um, uh, internet registries, the numbering systems, and the Internet Society, which houses the Internet Engineering Task Force and its companion um, organization called the Internet uh, uh, Architecture Board. So these are the early and still technical um, uh, bodies of the Internet of the code for the internet, okay? And that is the Internet Society uh, has uh, matured with the maturing of the internet to be not so US-centric anymore, but to go before in many places where the internet has gone around the world. So over the past 23 years, we have been active in internet technology, development, and policy issues. Uh, with the mission of ensuring, ensuring that the internet is for everyone, and I've added everywhere. <clears throat> because while there are three billion people online, that still is only one-third of the people on Earth. So two-thirds of people are still not online, and part of our mission is to make sure that happens. Last week, we uh, released our 2015 Global Internet Report that highlighted the impact of the mobile platform on internet connectivity. Uh, this report builds on last year's report detailing the openness and what openness means on the global internet uh, network of networks, supporting more than three billion users. And this year's report drills down on the mobile internet, which today offers hundreds of millions of users their primary, if not their only, access to the internet. In the developing world, in particular, it seems certain that the mobile platform holds the promise of internet connectivity for the next billion people. Indeed, the rise of mobile access to the internet will unleash the creativity and innovation of a whole new generation of internet citizens who experience the internet differently than the way we have in the past. So as this network of networks, the worldwide internet, remember what that is, internet. By the way, there's almost no place in the world I go that that's translated into something else. Now, Michael, you may think about this, but internet is internet, For interestingly. <clears throat> when, as it multiplies and spreads, both its benefits and its challenges have grown. Indeed, its innate power provides incentives for increased government interest and for those who would exploit it uh, for purposes never intended. Thus, last week here in Washington, actually I was in New Zealand, but here in Washington the news breaks that 21 million people have had their personal information stolen by attackers who seem to have remotely broken into the government systems from somewhere across the Internet. Information critical to their identity and lives, including fingerprints, according to one article, are now in the hands of unknown attackers. 
This incident joins the long line of recent data breaches and other cyber attacks that have been in the mainstream media, and these are only the ones we know about. Add to this, the added to this calamity, frankly, is the Snowden revelations and reports all over the world of pervasive surveillance. Beyond the severe impact to individuals, these attacks have a far more sinister and long-term impact. They weaken the level of trust that people have in the Internet. And for those who are, have yet to come online, the picture is that is painted is an uncertain one. So as we travel the world and talk to, uh, to users and companies and governments about the benefits of the Internet, the very first question we now hear is what about the security issue? So instead of a narrative of opportunity, we see instead a narrative of apprehension. This is perhaps the greatest challenge, in my view, that we, play, uh, that we face in the 21st century. Having now seen worldwide adoption of this powerful technology, how do we restore and sustain trust in the systems that make up the Internet? Not just the technology, but the systems of govern governance and operation. As the organizational home of the Internet Engineering Task Force, IETF, you'll hear me say this any number of times, the engineers who create the standards that power the Internet, we at the Internet Society tend to focus on how to build a better Internet. And indeed, a great deal of work of the IETF and the IAB, the Internet Architecture Board, is currently focusing on these security issues. But technology alone won't solve the trust issue. Many governments, legitimately and not so legitimately in my view, uh, alarmed by perceived and real security risks, want to impose regulatory requirements that somehow they think will solve the, solve the problem. At the Internet Society, we are wary of a tendency for governments to expand power and take actions that may not be ultimately effective and may further undermine individuals' online freedom and privacy. The Internet is an open, distributed system, an ecosystem of multiple overlying networks, devices, applications, people, commercial, and governmental interests. The simple reality is that just as technology alone will not solve these urgent issues, um, neither can governments design the solutions. Not alone. Business alone cannot effectuate the system changes that are required across the ecosystem to secure the trust. Network operators and internet service providers can't alone do this, and individuals certainly can't solve the big security problems. No one actor alone can solve these challenges and bring us back to that narrative of opportunity. There really are no silver bullets. Instead, the solutions need to involve all these different entities acting together. Possible, you say? We have captured this concept in an approach that we call collaborative security. In a recent paper that we published and that we presented at The Hague at the conference about two months ago where all the security folks were in the world, we suggest a framework of, if you will, five precepts uh, that um, cause us to think about the problem in a certain way. 
So here they are. So we together need to focus on solutions that build confidence and trust in the internet and protect opportunity for economic and social prosperity rather than simply on preventing perceived harms and attacks. We have to accept that security of the internet is a shared responsibility and that we will only all be secure when we are ensuring that we are not just protecting ourselves but also our neighbors. Three, we need to ensure that security solutions uh, preserve the fundamental open nature of the internet and the fundamental human rights on which it is uh, architected. It, inherent in the very architecture of a distributed, connected global system is the right of citizens to use that system to go wherever they want to go. Four, to build flexible solutions that are grounded in experience uh, developed by consensus and that will evolve to meet whatever new threats emerge. And five, that, that solutions need to be targeted so that they can be implemented by people at the closest point to where they will have the most impact. Think globally, but act locally. We have focused on a couple of tangible areas, uh, routing security, DNS security, and personal security. With respect to personal security, I'm talking very specifically about inviting, frankly, through action by the Internet Architecture Board, uh, for us all to have a serious conversation about pervasive encryption. For each of these areas, we are convening and moderating stakeholder groups to build consensus for taking action. I'm happy to discuss the specifics of these initiatives, but note just for the moment that our focus is both a proof of concept here as well as an attempt to do our small discrete part. There's much to be done. The question is how do we get it done? Building trust and confidence in the underlying technical infrastructure is a necessary precursor to the future of Internet governance. Which brings me to the trust in the institutions and entities that govern the Internet, or say they govern the Internet, or want to govern the Internet. As already noted, the Internet is a bottom-up, distributed network of networks without any single entity in control. Over the years, as the Internet has evolved as a critical means of connection, communication, and commerce, new institutions have emerged uh, to provide governance mechanisms, they say, while other older institutions have struggled to understand how their role and their rules will apply. There are some fundamental arguments around whether governance and what governance of the Internet is needed in the digital age. Earlier this year, the Global Commission on Internet Governance, uh, to which uh, I was an official observer, released a statement called Toward a Social Compact for Digital Privacy and Security. Uh, this was a commission led by uh, Carl Bildt, uh, who um, is the uh, past um, uh, foreign uh, minister of Sweden. Very interesting, interesting fellow. And there was a fascinating group of people from around the world 
basically with government and human rights backgrounds and some with a little bit of technical expertise. Uh, to, the ex to the extent that I was one of them, we know how little technical expertise was in the room. But fortunately, we were able to bring um, members of our Internet Society community in to do some work, to write some reports, and to try to inform and educate folks as to the underlying technology. In any event, they spent quality time building a consensus on how to advance this idea of governance on an interconnected system. Here's their quote. Let's try this. There must be a mutual understanding between citizens and their state that the state takes responsibility to keep its uh, citizens safe and secure, secure under the law, while in turn citizens agree to empower the authorities to carry out that mission under a clear, accessible legal framework that includes sufficient <coughs> safeguards and checks and balances against abuse. So, to begin with, they rightly concluded, in my view, that to have trust in governance, there must be this mutual agreement. An agreement by citizens that their legitimate needs by government action, I'm sorry, an agreement by citizens that there are legitimate needs uh, by governments to take action to keep their citizens safe and secure is something that is not necessarily um, yet uh, in place but also an agreement by governments of the bounds by which those actions are taken. For there to be trust in governance, there also must be trust in the openness and transparency of the process. And the commission rejected any notion that this process involved balancing the rights of users against the need for security, but rather that both need to be satisfied for any governance to be legitimate. So, quote, the obligation of states to protect and promote rights to privacy and freedom are not optional. Interestingly, uh, Michael Chernoff is on that, uh, Chernoff is on that commission, uh, as is David Orman, and there's some very interesting folks, I think, that uh, it make it worthwhile for you to take a look at that, uh, at the outcome there. <laughs> of course, all this assumes a government where its people have a voice. <laughs> Such is not the case in many parts of the world, and is not the case in many parts of the world where the Internet is and in being built. The Internet Society has uh, remained strong and steady that this cross-national um, system, this technology that really has no bounds, needs to be thought of in different terms than nation-state uh, regulatory and uh, policy frameworks. So within the formal internet policy world, we talk a great deal about this multi-stakeholder idea, which unfortunately, in my view, has devolved to make up this concept sometimes termed um, multi-stakeholderism, which every time I'm on, I am on a panel, I go, there is no such thing. We are not going to turn something into an ism on the internet. What we're really talking about is collaboration and doing what I just described with respect to security across the issues. That is bringing the relevant stakeholders together uh, to explore the problem, to try to find solutions, and to have reach consensus on their, um, on their implications. We started to call this at the Internet Society, testing a little bit, uh, collaborative governance. 
um, so that this compact among and between those most affected by any decision that is that it uh, needs to be rooted in an understanding of what is at stake for the legitimate stakeholders and a process then is designed for cooperation and collaboration between those stakeholders and government may well be one of those stakeholders but top-down government decision on these is not is what is required here these concepts are being stress-tested in a number of important policy debates this year. You may or may not know about the, um, the IANA uh, stewardship transition, as we call it, which is about the technical parts of the Internet uh, routing system, which are in the hands of the multi-stakeholder parties, which are the technical um, organizations of the Internet. For the last number of years, actually since the Internet emerged from uh, government control totally, um, there has been this multi-stakeholder um, IANA function made up of engineers and technical folks who actually make the decisions about the code and the numbering allocation and the uh, protocol parameters upon which um, that routing is directed. The uh, Department of Commerce of the United States, however, has kept a contractual relationship with those parties in a light kind of oversight role over these many years and has now said that it is time for it to move away from that and the multi-stakeholder organizations should assume their own governance. This has created skepticism on the part of various governments, including the United States government, as to whether that the, um, this organizational uh, structure housed in ICANN uh, really can govern itself and really can um, ensure that it is not captured by any other government. This has been an exercise in bottom-up, consensus-driven uh, community um, um, decision-making, which is messy and which, and which looks a little strange from the outside, but which to date has now produced some actual and real proposals as to how this, um, this multi-stakeholder um, organization will go forward and how it will indeed have its own integrity and not be captured by other governments. This will be a test, it seems to me, of whether this kind of um, approach can be and will be accepted by the world governments. Uh, to date, I think we are making good progress here. And again, the trust factor becomes enormously important that this, in fact, uh, this, this, these functions can operate in the private sector uh, without government intervention. The second test of this idea that this is a collaborative undertaking we have is with respect to the Internet Governance Forum, which has been the forum uh, uh, really sanctioned by the UN um, 10 years ago to allow for the bottom-up kind of um, development of the Internet across the world. This year, the UN will determine whether it will renew the mandate. 
there is pushback that, oh dear, that's just a talk shop. That's not a place where uh, governments can really get their hands around things and thus this thing should go away. We are strongly in favor of renewing that mandate. And then finally, the UN itself has its 10-year review in what's called the WISIS, the World Summit on Information Society, uh, which was the first summit where the world through the UN said, oh, we better look at this thing called the, called the internet and what is it doing? And it had lines of inquiries as to what was going to happen. And it is reviewing the 10 years uh, of uh, data, maybe, of what has happened uh, uh, in those lines of inquiry and deciding for itself, should it now do something, the UN, should it now do something about this thing called the Internet? There are um, proposals uh, afoot by some governments that indeed it should do something. It should set up a whole new department. It should set up a committee. It should do uh, other uh, parts of UN, should uh, assume some jurisdiction over various parts of uh, not only the internet social issues, privacy, data protection, et cetera, but also over these technical functions themselves, something that we would, um, we would object to very strongly. But here you have what is a multilateral um, uh, organization that is government to government with no stakeholder input whatsoever. It's governments talking to governments. And that's why we joined at the Internet Society, now over 125 other organizations and individuals to call upon the President of the UN General Assembly to open up the WISIS 10 review process to be inclusive of all stakeholders. And I'll ask all of you uh, to join me in that. We, we really need to make the case here that these kinds of decisions cannot be made just government to government. Now, there's been a little progress. The UN added a day for, um, for folks to come in and talk, and, and we're starting to see some understanding that this not only is a politically good thing to do, but that it's actually necessary to have the kind of information you need to make good decisions. So collaborative governance, we believe, is how we build trust in Internet governance. Collaborative security is how we build trust in the Internet's infrastructure. Both of these, of course, depend upon the availability of access to the open internet, where people aren't walled off from parts of the internet or subject to gatekeepers who pick favorites or require fees to allow access. This is a critical time to bring the next three and four billion people online, and we want for them the same internet of opportunity that we have the good fortune to enjoy. So in the end, we need to use these collaborative ideas, these collaborative notions of governance in order to secure an open, trusted, and secure internet. But a word of caution, trust is earned, and trust is fragile, and it can be easily lost. And thus, all of us who care about an open internet must work very hard to, um, to deserve that trust. So thank you. That would be... Thank you. My thoughts. That's wonderful. Um, I'm going to take the moderator's prerogative and ask the first question. Um, so we, we've seen the Internet grow around the world, both in countries where uh, their citizens have some trust in the government and some input into it, and in others where there may not be that trust. Um, 
can you give us some sense of uh, uh, the economic benefits to expanding the Internet? You were telling me a little bit before about some studies that you all have seen. Uh, what, what do you see as the economic benefits to an expanded Internet? First, as you know, as the economist you are, that there's no one economic model in the world and no one um, economic outcome that one can expect uh, from various commercial activity. That said, what we see on the Internet is a cross-border uh, uh, kind of effect where, and a local effect both, where the very act of being able to, um, to associate to uh, build businesses, to build communities, to get information results in increased economic activity. From the Fisher women who I've met and seen in Manila who have figured out a way to get better uh, nets uh, for their fishing, uh, to large institutions that now have grown up around the internet with respect to um, data uh, farms, et cetera, across the world, to the back office kind of stuff you see happening in India and other places where internet connectivity is elsewhere, you see a whole growth pattern happening. The emergence in some companies, uh, uh, countries, I'm sorry, of a very viable middle class, for instance, of, a, um, of new industries, and you also see the disruptive effects of the internet as we've seen here in the United States. So you see a changing and an, an innovation and evolution of what the economies look like. There's a World uh, Bank report that reports, I think, I hope I have the numbers right, that a 10% increase in um, uh, broadband connectivity results in a 1.4% increase in GDP. I think I got that right, Michael. So um, you see that even uh, the... the um, the, the research shows that you see this increase in economic prosperity. I have lots of other questions, but I'm going to open it up to the floor. And uh, please take a microphone and uh, identify yourself uh, when you're asking your question to Ms. Brown. Question here from Mike. Mike Nelson with Cloudflare, and I also teach Internet Studies at Georgetown. I have a two-part question, a serious part and a silly part. Um, in May, Secretary of State Kerry gave an important speech using some of the same terms you did about the need to preserve an open and free Internet. He gave it in Seoul, Korea, so not a lot of people noticed. But one of the more interesting things he said was that the Internet can be an innovative way to enhance the transparency of governments and hold governments accountable. One of the problems in Internet governance is governance are, governments are not representing their people or the best in, their best interests. So I'm curious if the Internet Society is doing anything to really track what governments are doing, particularly in developing Internet policy, where so often it seems they're more interested in protecting the business run by the Prime Minister's nephew than they are in providing cheap access to the Internet. The second silly part is, why does, Senator, why does uh, Secretary Kerry spell the Internet with a lowercase i, and what can we do about that? Mike, I've always thought it was your job to go and make sure those things get fixed. So <laughs> just would you make sure that 
that now Secretary Kerry understands it's a, it's a, it's a capital I. Uh, we're paying very close attention, I think, to the governments across the world and how they're thinking about uh, internet governance. Now, it's not called that everywhere across the world. It's called very different things depending on what place you are in development. So I just spent a wonderful week with the technical community in Africa, in Tunis, thank God, the week before the latest attack there, on that same beach, by the way. This is, by the way, the, the conditions that people are working in and the conditions in which they are trying to develop this new technology. It is absolutely inspiring to stand in a room of 300 engineers, not government uh, folks, and people who really want to build this technology for their people. What are the concerns of the governments there? One, it's building the thing. Uh, we had a, um, a major project with the African Union, for instance, to actually build IXPs. So that is the connection points uh, for internet uh, connectivity across Africa. I think we did 15 of them with them. Um, and uh, that the deal was that we would add our expertise for the human capacity building, uh, but that those IXPs would be run by associations uh, that were developed by the community themselves, and that they would be of the people. Now there, the, uh, the government was quite... Uh, quite supportive of that kind of thing. Governments are not always bad. Indeed, in, in the uh, developing world, it's very much uh, the case where the government itself may be putting the initiatives forward for, for uh, the building of the infrastructure. What folks like the Internet Society can do is help them understand the models that actually work to get the innovation we need. So that's one area of government kind of uh, intervention. In South Korea, where I've spent some interesting time, uh, their models of government are different, and yet they're way far ahead on their technology uh, output. Um, and there is a collaborative spirit very much in the South Korean model of how they do this. Uh, so again, we have a chapter now uh, uh, in South uh, uh, South Korea, where this conversation ripens. I talk all the time with the minister there and he with the Internet Society about what do we mean by bottom-up? What are you talking about anyway? How, why is it that this thing called the Internet requires this kind of user input? And we really do get the responses. Go across the world and I can, I can give you different models. Our folks, we have five regional offices, small, who work with these uh, chapters across the world who are in constant uh, conversation with governments about how to, and I prefer to say, govern ourselves on the Internet rather than govern the Internet, something I don't think is possible to do. Just as a follow-up, uh, if, if we look at the old uh, PTT model, uh, which were very much government-driven. So you had governments absolute control over postal systems, absolute control over telegraph, and subsequently telephone systems around the world. Uh, the Internet's different. It seems that, uh, in, in fact, only in the most dictatorial countries do the governments actually have any complete control over the Internet. And in the rest of the world, including the United States, uh, the government is just trying to figure out what's going on with the internet in some sense, and it, it's just it's out there on its own. And, and um, 
do you get a sense uh, in speaking with uh, government officials around the world uh, that they recognize this? Uh, your, your description of the UN WISIS and the government officials there uh, without really including anyone else, is, is this... Um, you know, what I see is a generational issue, just like you always see. So you see the young government officials want every bit of what everyone else has on the Internet. They see it. They can feel it. They understand what the economic opportunities are. And I'm not saying that just because someone is over 50, they don't have that drive. You see that in some. I've seen some of the most um, really far-reaching, far-vision folks uh, in ministerial positions who understand the power of this thing. I think of this minister in, um, in Kenya who understood that without the undersea cables on the Kenyan coast, they were not going to get the connectivity they needed because they were sending all their traffic up to Europe at bazillions and bazillions of dollars. There are now five, five undersea cables on the coast of Kenya. Now, they're in Kenya because they had a minister who understood what they needed to do and went out and did it. So I am not for, gee, there's, um, if you're a government official, you, you have no vision. That's not true. Um, it's just that you're hired to do a job in the government, as we all were when we were in government, and the ability to see beyond the job you're doing takes particular people, you know. A single person does make a difference, and you see this in countries. Again, I'll go back to Tunis. The fellow who was running before their revolution, the Internet for Tunisia, immediately, once the revolution happened, understood that they shouldn't be and opened up his entire process to a multi-stakeholder process and has prospered. Now, Interestingly, or maybe ironically, he's now the head of postal. So I was just talking to him about, okay, so now you're back with the post system. What's that about? And he said, we need to use the Internet to, uh, to upgrade our information system in our country. So this is what happens. Just like we've seen it everywhere else in the world, this is a powerful technology that itself changes the way you think about how you do work. And I'm wondering whether the Internet Society has a position on the role of intellectual property um, in this new world where intellectual property is, by definition, for you know centuries been regulated on a, a national basis or, or rights have been protected on a national basis. What do we do and what's the impact on uh, the global economy? of not having a way to protect uh, intellectual property. So Judy, I can tell you it has not been on top of my list. I look around and I see everybody talking about intellectual property and having quite a huge debate. You see around the world, by the way, some real uh, challenges to uh, US um, uh, dominance in this area. And we are saying that there needs to be local content. And we are saying that uh, local um, creators need to create and have a way to get their creation also on the internet. And I do spend a lot of time saying, you know, by the way, you really do need uh, some data storage in your own country uh, so that you have the facilities to uh, allow for that creation. That is not getting into the 
you know, who, what. And there's the intermediary problem that goes to me more to the network issue than to the IP issue. So I, keep, I come at things a little differently, and so at, to this point has the Internet Society. We are acutely aware, however, that these are issues that affect creativity, innovation, and the ability really to increase your economic prosperity. So it's no small thing. Okay, thanks. Next question. Let me follow up on Judy's question. Uh, there was a study released by the Atlantic Council yesterday that uh, uh, takes a, a stab at estimating the uh, economic costs of cybercrime, various types of cybercrime, everything from identity theft, such as what went on at OPM and elsewhere, to uh, uh, criminal activity online, to, uh, to IP theft. And they come up with some numbers. and. Uh, one could debate about them, but the, the framework, I think this goes to your stressing the concept of trust, of, of developing trust on the Internet for it to uh, remain vibrant. Um, uh, tell us a bit about uh, the various types of bad things that can go on the Internet and, and how the Internet Society is trying to help build trust so that people will, in fact, use the, the Internet to not be frightened away from it. Well, this question reminds me of one that I got at Davos, and I do. I, I, I hope I hope you'll forgive the horror of it, but it also was like. So, a head of state literally asked to sit with me uh, when I was there, and I said, "Of course." And what he said was, "They're showing beheadings on the internet. What is the Internet Society going to do to stop it?" And I said, "Sir, <laughs> we don't want beheadings on the internet." Uh, but the technology is not going to stop it. We as citizens are going to stop it. And if all of you sitting up here in the mountains decide as a matter of human decency, you want to take those things down the minute they go up, I think you ought to have that conversation. And I say this to you because so much of this is, uh, is about the way we decide we're going to live with a... With a, uh, with a um, a technology that we now know has some some holes in it, right? And we now know creates some security issues that we have to pay attention to. For too long, I think, particularly down the value chain, folks were not paying attention. Now, the big, very strong telecommunications company I used to work for paid a lot of attention about this all the time. I remember the numbers of attacks per day that you know, the big companies were dealing with. But now that everyone else has their own network, right? They all now are running networks. The question is, that say, is that same kind of security there? And is the front-end investment being made so that the back-end loss is not happening? So what are we doing about it? I we're talking about it. We're convening. We're trying to uh, lay a light on the fact that the big commercial, big commercial entities need to start paying attention. Government needs to start paying attention. And it turns out that the middle guys haven't a clue how to keep their stuff secure and and how how are we doing in our own homes now we go to wireless uh, devices and devices all over the place which may or may not have the security security is going to cost some money and the notion of the internet is it's free well there's some investment that has to be made to ensure that it's openness and freedom as I think about it which is to get from here to there happens in a secure way 
So we're going to talk about it. We're going to be at the places, and we're going to keep stressing that it's the trust of the Internet uh, that's at stake. Tell us about the IANA transition, uh, where that stands, uh, what, if any, role the Internet Society has in that, and uh, how you see the IANA transition playing out. So I think as it's been better understood uh, as to what it is we're even talking about, and I would hope that if anyone gets curious, go on IANA.org. Go on the website, and you will see that what we're talking about is the coding for the Internet. Okay, so there are codes that are used to take your email from here to there. And there's a code that tells you um, that uh, attached to that email is a, is, it a, is a picture, just for instance. And all of that is done through the, um, the development of the standards, which are on tables, uh, that anyone can use. Anyone can use. It's part of it. The other part is there's an allocation then of the routing numbers that allow things to go from one device to another. And then there is the assignment of uh, top-level domain names and other domain names that give you your .com, .org, et cetera. So the routing of the Internet is a very different routing than on the old uh, telephone network. It's not here to there. It's here to everywhere and back together, coded to get to where it has to go. Those functions are what is called the IANA functions, and they're carried out by groups of technologists, engineers. Those engineer, that whole function sits at ICANN, and these stakeholder groups have access then to how that happens and runs and is governed through processes and procedures which three organizations have uh, and have always had from the beginning. Once you start to understand how actually specific this is and how specific engineers are, you actually really do want the government to stay away. The engineers actually have a better notion of when and how to run their processes. In fact, it's sometimes amazingly um, specific. What was asked of them each was to look at their processes and determine what, if anything, needed to happen to ensure that they would continue to meet the criteria that the NTIA put out uh, if the NTIA went away. Simply, that's what they were asked to do. Okay? If we go away, will you still have a resilient, secure, open Internet that cannot be captured by someone else? And each of those communities has done that work now. They have done that work, and they have now reported up to a coordinating uh, group, I guess they call it the uh, coordinating group, who now has to look at that and say, do we have a plan yet that we can send to NTIA that the United States Congress now has said we want a little time to look at, and I think people are getting comfortable with that's okay. Um, and that the rest of the world, by the way, all the other nations of the world say, gee, that's okay. We think it's okay. Are you still a U.S. corporation? What is this about? Who really has the legal control of this? A lot of questions, okay? Where we are at now is those plans are sitting in a coordinating group. Uh, they are looking as to what it means to coordinate. And then there's a second question over here in a different group about what's called the accountability of ICANN itself. Is the corporation accountable? Is the board, is the bylaws work in a way that allows for a good, um, solid governance kinds of things, decision-making appeals, that sort of thing? Okay, so there's two things. That is still ongoing, although I think I saw some 
stuff, David, that something was happening there. There's still a process going on on that. So that's where it sits right now with Larry Strickling, who I don't mind. He's a friend of mine, but I'll tell you, he has expertly handled this as a government official, in my view, saying, here, community, here's the guidance. Here's what I'm looking for. Here's what I need to finish the job, but it's your job to do. And um, I think they've just said, well, by September, we would like to see a package. Meanwhile, there were hearings last week that sounded like they were quite much more cordial than the way we started. So I think people are starting to get educated about this. Uh, the the question then there'll be another. There's just meetings all over the place on this, but the next meeting of ICANN will be in Ireland. Dublin. Dublin, yeah, that's in Ireland. Uh, in Dublin in October, I believe, where I think we'll start to see whether this thing comes together. And it really is. Someone needs to do a PhD on this. Um, this. Uh, bottom-up decision and consensus-making process. It's very fascinating, and I think, I really do think it's going to be successful. Questions from the audience? By the way, uh, and so two members, uh, two of our appointees from the Internet Society sit on the coordinating committee, just to finish answering your question. Well, tell us a bit about the coordinating committee and and the role of the Internet Society and just how this all fits together. So it's the three parties who have the responsibility for numbers, names, protocol parameters, and the Internet Society because we are the legal home of the IETF. So we are the legal entity. And in the original NTIA contract, ISOC is a necessary party to the contract. So that's an old contract that's 20 years old or whatever. So, but because we were the originating legal entity, we are there. We play a role and have decided to play a role not to get into the business of each of those, those functions, but rather as a voice for what is good for the Internet. So you will hear us talk about what these criteria mean and what a good result would be for the Internet, but we haven't been into the, gee, you ought to do it this way or that way or the other way. Questions from the audience? Yes, this gentleman here. Hi, uh, G.K. Sanchez from Internet2, and I have a two-part question regarding the IANA uh, uh, stewardship transition. Uh, the first question is, um, given that the NTIA had mostly a symbolic oversight over um, IANA, um, come September, uh, when everyone's uh, I's have been dotted and T's been crossed, is there any effect on the day-to-day -day function um, with, uh, with IANA? And my second question is, uh, what effect does the .com Act have uh, regarding the IANA stewardship uh, transition. Thank you. I'll take the second first because I think I know, but uh, David may be better than me on this. I think what .com has now done since it's completed the legislation is not completed. There is a view here that Congress would like to take a look. And in the, in the uh, statute bill, there is a 30-day period, I think, in which they would like to take a look. They have not asserted the right to do anything that I understand in terms of 
actually affecting the outcome, but they want to take a look. And that's what I understand that does. Now, let's go back to the first part of your question was, oh, what's, what difference does it make? Well, that's what they're trying to figure out. What difference does it make if NTIA is not sitting there? What did it do functionally that needs to be done by someone else? And it's really for the internal parties, um, assurances of oversight inside the, the corporation itself, inside the, the functioning of all of these things together. Is there sufficient oversight that if something were wrong, you have someone who sees it and does something about it? I think that's fair. It's a fair, simple answer to what this is about. You've heard Ms. Brown refer to some of our guests here in the audience. We're very fortunate today to have uh, three of the, uh, the great pillars of uh, Internet policy in Washington. We have uh, former Congressman Tom Talkey, uh, who is with us, uh, and uh, he headed up uh, one of the offices of a major telecom company here in Washington. Of which I was privileged to work with him. <laughs> uh, we have Ambassador David Gross, who uh, represented the United States at international telecommunications uh, uh, venues uh, for many years and uh, has uh, remained active in Internet policy. Uh, and we have Mike Nelson, who was uh, one of the leading advisors to uh, Vice President Gore uh, and has been very active in Internet issues for for quite a while, uh, and so um, let me say to... before we we pack up that actually Harold uh, served on the commission in my view that um, had the right policy for the internet uh, in 1997 through 2001 back in the dark ages. No, it was 90. Well, when was the first order though? Uh, Which one? The, the uh, access charge order. I uh, think it was 90, December 97. 97. There you go. Uh, and those early decisions that was made by the Canard Commission, of which, yes. um, which uh, Harold was a member, I think have gone down as good, solid government decisions, which uh, I think uh, affected not only the United States but the world. So congratulations to you. Well, it's interesting how in the 1990s the concept of do not regulate the Internet was a bipartisan universal view of the world, and uh, uh, we need to get back to that. Yeah, so it's uh, – anyway, any final questions from our audience? If not, please join – oh, yes. Uh, Please – are you on net neutrality? I'm still trying to figure that one out, but my instincts say no. Well, let me, let me, I have to take it from the global point of view, okay? Okay, from a global point of view, first of all, there's a definitional issue of the words net neutrality across the world. I can assure you that it is a, um, a cry across the world that basically means please do not block my, my data and please do not block my use of the internet pure and simple do not block me and for that we agree (laughs) do not block and so if I go anywhere in the world and they're talking about net neutrality 
The first question I ask is, what do you mean by that? And what they mean by that is, please don't block my stuff. And keep your hands off my stuff. That's what it meant here in the United States as well, the many years we worked on it. Uh, and there are statutes around the world that say, here and there, here and there, don't block the Internet. Now, here in the United States, I would say, I've read this thing very carefully, that the order goes to the access technology called the broadband, that is, the access to the Internet. So I would assert that they have not regulated the Internet, and I'm going to stick to that around the world, because I would not want to, and because they have said in, the, in doing so that we're not going to apply all the rest of these parts of a, of a, of a law that was enacted in 1935, that, that the issue is don't do something, don't block. And around the world, to the extent that governments say to their people, we're going to protect you and you can use the Internet, that's a good thing. It would be, it would be a bad thing, in my view, if this was misinterpreted as saying you can now regulate to do something like tax the, the entry ramp or to actually mess around with the content. So we'll see how it develops. It's a conversation that's going to be had. And it's it's one that we have to we have to evaluate. Please join me in thanking Ms. Brown.